Sir, I'm detecting a subspace message. I'll put it on speakers. Subspace, dare to wonder. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Welcome once again to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. This is Season 3, Episode 98. I am Phil Lairness coming at you from Los Angeles, California. Coming at you from the environs of Detroit, Michigan. He is the Motor City-adjacent madman. He is TV's Dean Haglund. Dean, have you decorated for the holidays and is Birmingham a winter wonderland? <laughs> it's not a winter wonderland. Surprisingly, uh, there's no snow on the ground. It's wet, it's cold, but uh, snowless. Uh, my decorations included just unraveling a string of LED lights and jamming them in the Venetian blinds uh, so that they sort of hang around the window. Oh, and there's a, a, a little candle, a fake candle uh, Christmas light in the window. So that, uh, that's about as uh, festive as it gets around here. Late last week, I went along with Lily to uh, celebrate the the birthday of of Julia Thompson, the wife of friend of show Luke Y. Thompson. Oh, yes. And uh, the first part was a big party at this place where we made bath bombs. (laughs) The soap things that bubble up in the bathtub? Well, where were you to tell me what these things were when I needed it? (laughs) I had never heard of bath bombs, ever. You never heard? You never... Did you not go to Lush when that, that chain was? That's the chain where we had the private party at. <laughs> See? I, I had never heard of Lush and never heard that back in 1989 in England, they invented bath bombs. And the fact that they didn't invent them in bath in England really bothers <laughs> me. But well, Because that's a natural hot spring. You're not going to put effervescent soap in a natural hot spring. Are you crazy? You're a natural hot spring. <laughs> but, a natural hot spring of information. <laughs> you really are. Uh, and then, uh, as part of my continuing eye-open cultural experience, uh, courtesy of Luke, we then went and got conveyor belt sushi. Ah, yes. There the classic. is this uh, restaurant that started in Japan and now is such a big deal here in the States. The first one was in Little Tokyo, but it's everywhere now. The the sushi you order on a touch screen at your table, it's delivered to you on a conveyor belt, and your beverages are brought to you by a robot. <laughs> is that right? Yes. What kind of robot? Is it like a uh, the, the Honda model, uh, you know, Boston Dynamics, where it can jump and do somersaults, and it has two legs? Or is it the small, rolly one for uh, seniors with just a happy digital face on it and a permanent tray that you just pick the drink off. The trays are in back. It has it has trays in back, and uh, the face changes expressions, and it does right. play music for you, and it is incapable of keeping the hot beverages fully in the containers. It didn't <laughs> seem to be spilling cold beverages, only hot beverages, when it would come to a stop or make a turn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the brilliant technology that that is. Conveyor belts of sushi, don't they just put the, – the reason I stopped going to those is because the sushi that you don't want continues to rotate around the conveyor belt till you finally just give up and take the piece well, you don't want. That's the bottom. All the different – not all of them, but most of the menu is displayed on a conveyor belt that runs through the entire restaurant, past, for example, our table, past Nicholas Turturro's table, brother of John, <laughs> John Turturro, who was also eating there at that point, and uh, all the way through the restaurant. Um, but you look at it, you see it, and yeah, you can take those plates if you're so desperate to take 
food off a conveyor belt that's been just going around and around and around. But you order the sushi from a touchscreen, and then on another conveyor belt, it's delivered directly to you. In- oh. Instantly. It just comes shooting down the conveyor belt and stops right at your particular table. Yeah. See, now that's that's smarter. The ones I've been to are just, it continually looped. And uh, when they've decided to put something else up, they would. But they would just wait for everything to be gone first before they replenished the conveyor belt. But now, of course, you haven't been observing the uh, scary TikTok trend over in, uh, uh, well, I've seen it just in Japan, where they uh, take the lid off, lick the sushi, put the lid back on, and let it go back on the conveyor belt. But that's a thing that was the kids were doing. Celebrity deaths. Denny Lane was an English singer, songwriter, and guitarist who co-founded Wings and your favorite, the Moody Blues. <laughs> my favorite? Yes. The Moody Blues, my favorite? He, okay. he died December 5th in Naples, Florida of interstitial lung disease at the age of 79. Wow. Interstitial lung disease. I don't know that uh, prognosis. No, I always thought interstitial was like what you called your short programs that you put between the longer programs. Those are the interstitials, right? Right. Or my intercostal muscles are between my ribs. So if I have interstitial lung disease, is it between the rib bone? Perhaps he choked to death on a long form advertisement. (laughs) (laughs) This is not, this is maybe not the tone that we want Anyway, Denny Lane was fronting his first band, Denny Lane and the Diplomats, when Ray Tom... Hey, that's, that was your favorite band. When Ray yeah. Thomas and Mike Pinder asked him to join the new band they were forming, the M&B Five, that group quickly evolved into the Moody Blues, and Lane sang leaked vocals on their first hit, Go Now, which topped the charts in the UK and made the top 10 in the US. He also sang such songs as I Don't Want to Go On Without You and Every Day, and he co-wrote many of the Moody Blues' early songs, including And My Baby's Gone and This Is My House. During his two years in the Moody Blues, they toured with the Beatles, and apparently the bands got on well, which explains why, after the Beatles broke up, Lane would team up with Paul and Linda McCartney to form Wings in 1971, and he remained one of the band's three core members until they disbanded in 1981. When, <clears throat> when Wings recorded their most famous and acclaimed album, Band on the Run, the band consisted solely of the three of them. In Wings, he played guitar and other instruments and provided backing vocals, occasionally singing lead on such songs as Time to Hide and The Note You Never Wrote. Lane also co-wrote songs alongside McCartney, such as Mull of Kintyre, London Town, and Deliver Your Children. After Wings came to an end, Lane released additional solo albums, and he continued working with McCartney as he embarked on his own solo career. In 2018, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Moody Blues. Charles Officer Dean was an award-winning Canadian writer, documentarian, and filmmaker who was nominated for 10 Genie Awards for his 2008 film Nurse.Fighter.Boy and who directed episodes of The Porter, an historical drama series. He died December 1st in Toronto after a long illness at the age of 48. Wow. Officer studied communication design at the Ontario College of Art and Design, your alma mater, OCAD. (laughs) OCAD. And acting at Neighborhood Playhouse in New York City, leading to stage and screen appearances throughout the 2000s and 2010s. However, he was uh, most popular as a filmmaker. His directorial debut came in 2000 with When Morning Comes, which played at the Toronto International Film Festival. And his 2008 feature film, the aforementioned Nurse.Fighter.Boy, received wide acclaim. Inspired by his sister's struggle with sickle cell anemia, the movie was recognized at the 57th Berlin International Film Festival, won the Audience Award at the International Film Festival Mannheim Heidelberg, earned a jury prize in the Audience Award for Best in World Cinema 
at the Sarasota Film Festival, and as I mentioned, was nominated for 10 Genie Awards, which later became known as the Canadian Screen Awards. Right. His work on documentary films also won acclaim. His 2010 film Mighty Jerome chronicled the life of Harry Jerome, Canada's most decorated track and field star. Okay. Weren't you supposed to play, play that part? <laughs> no, no, I didn't get the, I didn't get a casting call on that. I don't know why. Uh, his 2017 documentary Unarmed Verses explored the experiences of black youth in Toronto and race relations in the city as a whole. Uh, his his success continued with the 2020 feature film Achilles Escape, which won for Best Original Screenplay at the Canadian Screen Awards. It was the final film before his death. Oh. I don't suppose you ever encountered that fella, did you, fellow Canadian? I never fella. did. I think, yes, our, I think uh, his rise to fame was after I had already moved to Los Angeles. That's true. And uh, and contrary to what I like to imagine, like there is no club where you all hang out, right? No, but there's a Canadian embassy, but we don't often just go hang out there. Playing bocce ball in the courtyard. At the <laughs> Canadian Embassy. Bocce ball. That, is that a, a, no, the, the five pin bowling. That's the Canadian thing. A smaller ball, five pins. It's uh, played in shopping malls in northern British Columbia. Andre Brower was, for a while, one of my favorite actors ever uh, when he was starring on Homicide Life on the Street. Uh, mm-hmm. He was very popular for his performance as not only that police officer, but as the, the police officer in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? Yeah. He runs the precinct. He died December 11th of lung cancer at the age of 61. Brower had an early career success uh, in a major supporting role in the 1989 movie Glory. You might remember oh, playing a, yes. a free black man who signs up to fight for the Union Army in an all-black regiment in the Civil War. Within a few right. years, he had achieved TV stardom when he landed a leading role on Homicide Life on the Street. His character, Detective Frank Pembleton, became a fan favorite as a skilled detective who is especially adept at interrogating suspects and extracting confessions. And I once told you that my friends and I, we used to use his performance as the basis for insults with each other. Um, Like, you couldn't last two minutes in the box with Frank, we would say. (laughs) Yeah. He won an Emmy Award in 1998 for his work on Homicide, and his other honors uh, for his performance included an NAACP Image Award, two Television Critics Association Awards. He remained with the show for six of its seven seasons and returned for the 2000 Homicide, the movie. Brower's other major TV role was on paper quite similar, right? Another talented, right. driven police officer. Uh, but boy, this uh, the tone of this show could not have been more different uh, the comedy Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Brower's Captain Raymond Holt was hilariously stoic and deadpan. Brower was credited for his nuanced and stereotype-free portrayal of an openly LGBTQIA character. He won two right. Critics' Choice Television Awards for that portrayal. Uh, and, of course, just a, a, a long list of... Uh, of credits on television and in film. But as one would expect, I think given his bearing and his gravitas, even in that very comedic role, uh, what a, what a stage career this uh, gentleman had. Uh, Frequently he appeared in the works of Shakespeare for New York city's Delacorte theater. Yeah. I met him one time. He was, uh, you know, he was such a great guy, but boy, just to stand in his presence, he had the gravitas. You know, you hear that? Oh, a lot of gravitas that guy had. This guy, ay ay ay, just grounded, still looking you right in the eyes like he's looking at the back of your soul. It was uh, a bit, uh, you're taking it back a bit the first time you meet him. You confessed within 90 seconds. In the box with... <laughs> I, did. I did. I didn't even do it. And Andre I Brower. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. Yeah, 90 seconds in, I had confessed to something I hadn't done, and I was in fetal position crying for my mom. <laughs> True. <clears throat> Shirley Ann Field was a British actress who had roles in such prominent films as Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and Alfie as well as in the TV soap opera Santa Barbara. She died December 10th at the age of 87. She worked as a model and had several small roles in British cinema before getting her breakout role in 1960's The Entertainer. No lying, that actually is one of your favorites. <laughs> it is, actually. You, you really do like that. She credited director Tony Richardson with her big break, and she worked with him again in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which he produced. She went on to star in the Hammer horror film The Damned and the historical epic Kings of the Sun. In 1966, she had a supporting role in the Michael Caine classic Alfie. Later in her film career, she appeared in the popular film My Beautiful Laundrette. Boy, I liked that movie. As well as in <laughs> Getting It Right, Shag, and The Kid. In addition to her celebrated career on the big screen, she had an active TV career. On Santa Barbara, she was the first to play Pamela Pepperidge Conrad, appearing on the show for several months before being replaced. Ooh. What? Uh, the, the reason for bringing it up was just to get to say Pamela Pepperidge Conrad. That's really the only reason. I, <laughs> That's really a great character name, I must uh, say. Uh, other appearances on British and American TV included Last of the Summer Wine, Where the Heart Is, Monarch of the Glen, Doctors, and Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> so if you are using your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour Celebrity Death bingo card, you just got Murder, She Wrote. There you go. <laughs> Yay! I've been waiting. Just two more really quickly. One, this guy, an, uh, one of those actors that whose name did not uh, immediately occur to me. But once I read about him, I went, oh, yeah, that guy. And then read about his life. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this guy, what a life. Uh, he, Jack Hogan, the actor who played uh, PFC William Kirby for five seasons and 112 episodes of television's Combat. Remember oh, Combat? Oh, yeah. A, a World War II drama that ran from 1962 to 1967. He died December 6th in Bainbridge Island, Washington, at the age of 94. He uh, was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He got his pilot's license at age 16. Wow. Then joined the U.S. Air Force out of college, served in the Korean War, attained the rank of staff sergeant before leaving the military. He then moved to Hollywood where he took acting classes at the Pasadena Playhouse. No. Remember that? What, a, what, a, what an august uh, place of acting instruction the Pasadena Playhouse was. We've talked about this before. Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman were roommates there while attending the Playhouse. It's something? And, yeah. yeah. Um, he began landing small roles, Mr. Hogan, in movies and television. His first role was the 1956 Western Man from Del Rio, starring Anthony Quinn. And his television debut came the following year in the police procedural Harbor Command. Of course, his most popular role was that long-running uh, role that he played on the, the hit drama Combat. He was a mainstay on the show. Um, and the show itself won acclaim for being a, a, at the time, realistic depiction of life as an infantry man. Um, he also appeared later on, and you know, and, and before on such shows as The Rifleman, Adam Twelve, Hawaii Five O. But this is fascinating where his career goes. He ends up becoming a casting director, and he was the casting director on Magnum PI. Come on, yeah. So wow. kind of a cool life, right? Like a pilot yeah. at 16 enlists in the military, then uh, comes to, to acting after that. And then, uh, you know, clearly loves acting and actors enough yeah. that, that then he shifts into casting. Amazing. And I must say, retiring on Bainbridge Island in uh, Washington State, that's, uh, that's also pretty cool. That is a, yeah. a lovely piece of scenery up there. Yeah, that's and, a beautiful uh, part of the world, yeah. Yeah, so that guy did it right. Uh, and finally, someone who uh, you knew, uh, Camden Toy. 
Yeah. A, a character actor who specialized in villains and creatures for independent movies and horror films and horror TV um, appeared and, and became quite popular uh, after appearing on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, he was one of these actors we've talked about from time to time who spent a lot of their career performing under layers of prosthetics and Latex. makeup. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, but we've, we've always doffed our cap because, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, the, the costume's doing the work, right? right. But, but man, you cast good actors when you're burying them under all that stuff. Yeah, because they have to project through all of that makeup, right? With their voice and eyes and, and body movements. Yeah. Uh, emoting, you know, you emoting in ways that um, may not be uh, in the toolbox for all actors. Yeah, yeah. Your physicality, like Doug Jones has it, Candon had it, oh, yeah. right? This This ability to express physically, it's shockingly hard to do. And so very few actors are good at it. And he was very good at it. I was really shocked to learn of his death. He died December 11th of pancreatic cancer, uh, age wow. of, of 68. His uh, involvement in film and TV was inspired in part by his dad, who worked as a makeup artist in the film industry and encouraged Camden to pursue acting. Uh, Camden Toy got his start playing small roles in independent films. But as, as I alluded to, doors really opened for him when he played one of the demonic gentlemen in uh, a, a particular fan favorite episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Hush in 1999. The episode was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series, the only oh. episode in the series ever to receive such an honor. Um, wow. And he returned to what they call the Buffyverse several times, including uh, appearance on the spinoff show Angel. And he would always play these outlandish makeup and prosthetics laden uh, villains and monsters, including the skin eating gnarl uber vamp Turok Han and the Prince of Lies. He uh, <laughs> went on to appear in such shows as The Bay, Goodnight Burbank, The Mentalist, Shameless, along with dozens of independent films, and was a founding member of Theater Nada in New York City. Uh, right. Fixture on the. Uh, on the on the on the circuit on the convention tour also wasn't yeah it? yeah absolutely yeah we were uh, attended many of the same conventions over the years and uh, my particular favorite was a uh, celebrity uh, poker tournament in Vegas that uh, him and I uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say matched wits I lost everything very quickly I'm a terrible poker player but that guy he uh, he almost uh, cleaned out the entire room of, uh, of course, it was for charity, so naturally uh, it wasn't real money. But, uh, but yeah, that guy could play a mean hand of poker, too. At this point, I'd like to share with you a message we received from a loyal listener to the show, the great uh, Greg Vincent, who actually ah. wrote me on November 29th, and uh, I have not shared this because I did not think until the show either of us had anything to uh, add to what he wrote or, or any okay. way to address it effectively. Hey, Phil, I love Ridley Scott as much as the next guy. <laughs> Very good. But he has taken a fascinating historical figure, parentheses, Napoleon, closed parentheses, <laughs> and has cast a fascinating actor, parentheses, Joaquin Phoenix, closed parentheses, to portray him, and has managed to create a thoroughly mediocre, dull, awkward lead character in the process. Was that the point? <laughs> if that's not the point, what's the point? <laughs> wow. Oh, I think it says, if that is the point, what's the point? Uh, right. I think either way it works. I think... Greg Vincent really wants to know the point. Now, you saw this. It's it's very curious, Dean. You can maybe also try to explain to me, because you saw the the ads and everything. It's We've talked about how it was shot on Malta. Um, I'm a Ridley Scott fan as well. Mm -hmm. um, Joaquin Phoenix is a fascinating actor. But Lily, 
saw the same trailers that we did. Yeah. She wants to see it on the big screen. And I'm, you know, at best lukewarm. I'm totally fine waiting to see this on a- Apple Plus. Uh, stand by, Houston. We are receiving signals from subspace. And that difference between our reactions of the trailer, especially given who made it, and that it's a war film, really surprised me. So that's another question I'm throwing at your feet, which is more maybe about the marketing. But what is it that I'm sensing from the trailer or not getting that is turning me off? And what is it that she's getting that's making her want to see it? And which one of us should be applauded for our reactions to the marketing (laughs) campaign? Well, I went to the theater this Saturday. In there, the demographic was four men, including myself, all in our 50s and 60s, and then one uh, girlfriend who was um, reluctantly tagging along. In fact, Patty refused to go, and she walked the dogs instead. So what probably Lily is pertaining, the fascination is, and I think what Ridley Scott was trying to make the point of this is the juxtaposition between his intense love affair with Josephine, who played by Vanessa Perry, who was fantastic, actually, and the dichotomy between that passion for her versus his cruelty to uh, the royalists, the other his enemies, basically, and this, the brutality of the violence and special effects in this uh, thing. There's so much blood splatter and Oh, my God, when his horse gets a cannonball in the chest in this third scene. God. Oh, my gosh. And apparently this is a famous thing where he dug the cannonball out of his favorite horse's chest after he became, uh, for the first time, he's uh, brigadier general after his successful first uh, mission. I'm so glad Uh, that you shared that. (laughs) I am. Because right there, I wouldn't let now Lily see this. (laughs) Because that would really, like, there's no coming back from that it, for her. It was shocking because that's the first speck of violence. I mean, you see, you know, him coming up and, and he's got this plan to get the British blockade out of the French fort and uh, so on and so forth. And the battle begins and it's done at night and the British are all drinking inside the fort and uh, the first explosion. And when they fire the first rounds of cannons at the French... Who gets hit but Napoleon's horse? And it, my, ay, yay, ay. It's like so graphic and bloody and shocking that you are jarred. You know, I've seen a ton of war movies. I watch, But oh my gosh, a horse getting a cannonball in the chest? That is something. <laughs> I'm still traumatized by it, actually. Yeah. I mean, oh, and by the way, I just want to cut off Maurice Terenzio before he hits send on the email. Uh, oh. Dean meant to say Vanessa Kirby. Um, oh, yes. The actress, what did I say? Not Vanessa Perry, the uh, vice dean for strategy at George Washington <laughs> University. That's who I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, wonder, yeah. the wonderful Vanessa Kirby, by the way. It's fantastic in this. And Ridley Scott wants to release the four and a half hour version of this, which, believe it or not, I would think be helpful because you kind of have to know a lot about Napoleon or at least read his Wikipedia page before you go see this movie because it's so condensed because he had done so much. He was, you know, a very ambitious fellow. And so to try and put from the beginning, it's the uh, it starts with the beheading of Marie Antoinette as he witnessed. And that began his movement to then become emperor of France and all his conquests. And a lot of it, a lot of the political uh, machinations a post-revolutionary friend, very complicated and hard to just stick in with a bunch of people screaming. He was motivated, I think, to get to make the film that his all-time hero, Stanley Kubrick, never got to make, right? I was going to bring that up. Remember that exhibition that showed the movies that Kubrick didn't make and his Napoleon research was an entire bookcase of... There was a whole uh, room dedicated to each of his movies, but there was also a room dedicated to the Napoleon movie he didn't make. 
so I was just going to suggest, based on what you said, because already when you talked about the extended version, I did sort of sit up and go, okay, well, that might be more interesting and perfect for something like Apple Plus. Like, Well, exactly. Why not Ridley Scott make a an episodic miniseries out of this? There's nothing wrong with that. We live in the golden nothing. age of these miniseries. In fact, you know, and I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but I actually watched and really enjoyed more than I did the theatrical version what is called extended edition of The Hateful Eight from Quentin Tarantino, which in the credits says the eighth movie from Quentin Tarantino. But on Netflix, he made an extended version. He supervised it, and it's a four-part miniseries. Oh, and that's cool. Most of the extended length are opening and closing credits on the in each of the episodes. Honestly, there's maybe a few minutes... <laughs> of added material, but uh-huh. the breaking it down structurally into four episodes makes the whole thing, at, at least for this viewer, so much more pleasing. So just what you're saying, I wish that that was a way in which I could a- attack and delve into this. And Well, you know, it would probably make sense because the battle set pieces... Uh, burning of Moscow. The uh, uh, spoiler the alert. Well, <laughs> oh yes, I guess. Yeah, again, read the Wikipedia before you go. You don't won't uh, be any spoiler alerts. But each uh, one of these things are sort of set up with you know a screen title and then a, a hugely elaborate. And it doesn't look at all digital. It looks like thousands of extras and the million horses and. Uh, you know, complicated logistical filming problems. I mean, I saw the interview with him where he had 45 different department leads that had to have a meeting almost every second day and go over a couple of pages of the script that they were going to start shooting and just go, department lead number one, do you have any problems here? You know, it was just this logistical nightmare to make this movie. And so perhaps when you have that kind of uh, machination going on in your head, you lose sight of some storytelling details. You are perhaps missing the uh, story per se. And again, I think he was trying to to divide how can this guy be such a deeply intense uh, love affair and so ruthless on the battlefield? Is that one and the same? And, the, you know, I suppose that's the exploration doesn't really uh, pay out in any uh, way. So, uh, yeah, a four and a half hour version, probably very helpful for uh, a lot of the missing uh, motivations and historical uh, detail. And again, I would think this would be perfect as an episodic, just each battle sequence. Ridley Scott backed himself into a corner by choosing to throw shade at the Blade Runner sequel, especially for the reason that he did. He, He threw shade at it for its perceived lack of box office performance. And again, this is a movie that made hundreds of millions of dollars. It just wasn't enough money for right. it to make, given what it was, what it cost. But again, the original Blade Runner lost money for decades. It took decades before yeah. that became seen as profitable. So that's an odd thing for him to throw shade at. I think we know that the motivation was that he was too busy to get to direct it. And so he handed it off and he probably regretted it. And right. so a little bit of sour grapes, which is not becoming, you know, just stay out of it. But the <laughs> other thing that he said where he put the blame for its box office performance was that the movie was too long. It was way too long. Nobody wants to sit <laughs> for a movie that long. So right. cut to him making his Napoleon epic. Well, he's backed himself into a corner, right? Right. Because what's he going to do? release a four-hour movie after criticizing someone else for releasing a movie that was two hours and 45 minutes? Yeah. And you know, we always armchair direct, but here's where you can armchair edit, and you can see uh, that some poor editor uh, had the six producers standing over his shoulder and going, just put in the shots that cost the most amount of money. And then we'll cut the extraneous out, and then the last part is we'll just 
put in elements we need to make the story sort of make sense. And you could see Ridley Scott sharing Napoleon's ambition, right? Not just for conquering the world, but for making a, a movie that is, as, as Stanley Kubrick realized, unmakeable. Because if you want to put all these details in, you're going to have a four and a half hour running time because uh, his life was packed. You have way too much information about one guy's life to just jam into a two hour movie. It we're, just, it just staggers living, the mind. We, 2023 has been a, a, a terrific year, a spectacular year for movies. And yet it's also a perplexing year. It's, yes. it, and I guess that's to be expected because the industry is really trying to shake itself out and figure out what it is now and what right. film distribution is. So, you know, I'm perplexed by, let's start positive. The big box office hit this week and surprising people with how well it did was Wonka, the new, the new Wonka version from director Paul King, who comes right. to it hot off his, uh, you know, un believable successes with the Paddington movies. Um, right. You know, Paddington 2 is not just considered, you know, a great Paddington movie, but maybe one of the greatest uh, family films, if not films, of all time. Right. And so he has all this goodwill and momentum behind him. I went to see it um, a month ago at an advanced uh -huh. screening at the Directors Guild, and I had high hopes I thought the trailer looked good, so I was really excited, and and I did enjoy it. I thought too much of it was CGI. I wasn't sure how much of that was the result of making it during the pandemic, though. It sort of felt mm -hmm. a little bit like we're figuring out a way to make a movie when people can't be together. But there were so many early reports that it was a mess, and I don't know where those reports came from. In fact, I wish... It was a mess. I wish it got <laughs> messy. I found the movie way too controlled. Oh. And I found uh, the original songs to be occasionally pleasing, occasionally awful. The big showstopper was 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 rough, but I didn't understand why they don't just bring back Candyman, seeing as how they brought back Pure Imagination and the Oompa Loompa song. So why not bring back Candyman, revive that as your big showstopper? Uh, <laughs> yes, Hugh Grant as the Oompa Loompa was all sorts of rad, and Chalamet <laughs> was truly charming and weird in, in, in ways that, that did real honor to Gene Wilder. Um, yeah. but, but is the movie good? I don't have any idea, and I saw it. I, I, I think it's pretty rotten to bag too much on it, Though, right. because it, 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 it's a family film whose heart is in the right place and it, and it works hard and there is magic. It's not at the level of the Harry Potter movies, but it is better than the Fantastic Beasts movies. Um, okay. And I bring up those comparisons because it's released at the time of year those movies would have been released and it's from the producer of all of those movies, Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts. But what was hidden from me going into the movie in the advertising, uh, at least unknown to me, and I assumed, oh, everyone else who's at the screening must have known, um, was that it was a musical. And, yeah, I and, didn't know. And then it turns out that it's this big hit opening weekend, and it's a big hit with young people under 30, especially they love this movie. Like it's an A++ for those under 30. And they were all very pleasantly surprised. None of them knew that it was a musical. And <laughs> so I've been reading about how this is the recent trend to hide the fact that a movie is a musical because especially young audiences don't like musicals. So you've right. got to get them there to surprise them and then they like it. There was a movie that did not open as well as people hoped. It was the recent um, Hunger Games uh, sort of oh, reboot. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the Hunger Games sequel or prequel that the world didn't know it wanted or needed. And <laughs> right. uh, which was based on a book in the series, but a book that came out during the pandemic and did not sell nearly as well as those uh -oh. original books. So there wasn't the uh, built-up demand based on a beloved book. The book was. There's also right. no Jennifer Lawrence, and 
there was a fan base that was uh, quite honestly still seething over feeling exploited by having the final movie split into two before the release so that they would have to buy, you know, two tickets. So that was all working against it. And lo and behold, yes, it had the lowest opening of the franchise. But I think all those things considered, it's to be expected. And the opening wasn't bad. And the and the legs that it has had have been rather remarkable. So I decided, not having seen the movie, to dig into why its hold is so good all these weeks later. And I find out that people really love that it's a musical. And that's the first time I learned it was a musical. (laughs) And I saw that trailer. They hid the fact that it's a musical. But now that I learn it, oh my goodness, shots in that trailer make so much more sense now. Oh. So it's fascinating that the the, the way you market a musical is not to market the musical. Another Mm. thing that has me totally just perplexed on so many levels, Dean, is that there is a Godzilla movie, that it's called Godzilla Minus One, that perplexes me no end, That, that a Godzilla movie is getting great reviews. I mean, it's in the consensus top 40 of best movies of the year. Um, You know, not not top 30, not top 20, but top 40 um, for a Godzilla movie. And so, but all those things perplex me. But then the last one perplexes me even more, which is nobody is going to see it. It's a Godzilla movie that like is playing like an art house film. And uh, the box office has been terrible here. So explain all of that to me. Why Godzilla? Why a terrible title? Why is it great? And why does nobody care? I saw this. I enjoyed it immensely. So uh, why was nobody else in the theater? Well, there was a couple people. It's all in Japanese. Subtitles. A. So it's not dubbed. Okay. It's. It's made in Japan. It's called Minus One because it actually takes place before the original Godzilla movie, which was set in, what, 1952 or something? Oh, so, so it's, this, a, it's a period piece set prior to the original piece. one. Okay. Right. Not, and it's a story. Not at, all, not at all related to the recent American wannabe blockbusters. No. Not even a little bit. Uh, Minus one, because it is the prequel to all the Godzilla movies. Well, see, already I'm on board based on how you've you've described this. I had no idea from what marketing materials I've seen that any yeah. of what you just described, uh, Japanese language, period piece, prequel, I knew none of these things from the little bit of marketing that I saw and and so I'm not so much going to blame what I did see as what I didn't see. I saw right. every blockbuster imaginable in theaters. I saw your your Barbies, your your, your Barbenheimers, your uh, <laughs> your your Indiana Joneses, your Mission Impossibles, the Creator. I saw all these on the big screen, and I never saw a Godzilla trailer. And that would have seemed to be when to show this. And yet my comment to you about how it seems like it's playing like an art house film, it almost seems like that was what they released was an art house (laughs) film. Well, I could see why they wouldn't put the trailer on uh, during Oppenheimer because it is set in post-nuclear bombed Hiroshima. And it is a story of a kamikaze pilot that lived... And landed his plane saying he had engine trouble and uh, was a disgrace. And was uh, when he went back to his town that is in nuclear ruins uh, to find his family dead. But the neighbors all think he's a disgraceful, cowardly uh, kamikaze pilot. He then has to reform his life post-war, which is not a feel-good movie and did not probably mesh at all with Oppenheimer. So I could see why the marketing team was having a bit of trouble. Uh, the marketing I saw the trailer just had the Godzilla destruction porn, right? Yes, exactly. You had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so you didn't know it was a story about a man disgraced 
who finds courage to then go and fly an, uh, an experimental uh, warplane into Godzilla's mouth, of all things, spoiler alert. Uh, and that, that uh, arc for this actor was fantastic. It was amazing. I, it was like you really felt it. I was, you know, maybe inspired by these these movies successfully hiding the fact that the movies are musicals. Um, <laughs> and what we've always talked about is really what you need to convey as a tone of a movie. That's your yeah. job is to convey the tone. And so I'm fine with hiding the fact that it's a musical. Uh, as long <laughs> as you're capturing the tone, as long as you're giving a sense to people of how they're going to feel while watching yeah. the movie, then they're going to be open to the experience. So I would say with Godzilla, there's got to be a way that they could have easily cut a trailer so it's this interesting little period piece story about a Japanese pilot in 1947. And yeah, never right. reveal Godzilla. Don't reveal Godzilla in the marketing. At all. Call the movie At Minus all. One and make people believe it's the story of this uh, of this pilot in the trailers. And then you get into the movie and it's, oh my goodness, this is a Godzilla movie. And as long as you've captured the tone, uh, audiences will be wonderfully delighted, a la the Cloverfield sequel. Well, see, that's a smart uh, thought right there. Because... Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the original Godzilla uh, without Raymond Burr in it. Please tell me that <laughs> a la Rogue One, the Star Wars movie, and Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing, please tell me that an AI brings back Raymond Burr for Minus One. That's, <laughs> I cannot, that would be uh, my favorite use of AI as long <laughs> as AI ever gets used. To bring uh, back Raymond Burr for that role would be amazing. <laughs> it did not happen. I'm sorry to say. But uh, again, if if you saw the non-American, if you saw the Japanese 1950s Godzilla movie, you'll realize that there are extended scenes of people walking uh, post-Godzilla attack through the ruins of their town, emotionally distraught, uh, as is uh, post-war Tokyo and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? How... Uh, devastating that was uh, to the entire nation. And that was revealed. That's exactly what Godzilla was the metaphor for yes, in the first absolutely, place. Absolutely. And so, so this has that in it as well as an exploration of what is courage? What does it take to regain honor? You know, honor, courage, things, these things are hard to explore in a movie. Uh, harder still when you got a the thirty foot monster with that sounds uh, that sounds great. I mean, yeah. I, I, you really did make sense of all of this, and <laughs> I would say honestly, Oppenheimer could have used uh, an appearance by Godzilla at the end. Like <laughs> I said, you know, coming out, it was a, it was a terrific achievement. Obviously, uh, just a masterwork. But truthfully, as I predicted at that time. Oppenheimer should win Best Picture unless Killers of the Flower Moon, and yeah. which we did see the trailer for before Oppenheimer. And sure enough, now it's like a foregone conclusion that Killers of the Flower Moon is going to win Best Picture. And I saw all 14 hours of Killers of the Flower Moon uh, this weekend <laughs> at the Director's Guild. It, it's a movie where like, even people with criticisms are going to go... Yeah, but it's pretty. It's pretty good. Like we live in a we live in a ranked voting world now, so that's the best asset it has. Because even if you don't think it's the best, you would never put it low on your list because I see. there's just so much great about it. There is great acting in it, and right. we've heard a lot about the acting from Lily Gladstone, who is is winning everything. But the great acting in it, the jaw-dropping, uh, eye-opening acting in it is being done by this newcomer named Robert De Niro. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got big hopes for that guy. I know it seems strange given who he is and all that he's done. We've dedicated an entire show to him. This is an utterly different De Niro. It is a depiction of evil as you know, masquerading with pious sanctimony that is so riveting and terrifying and unnerving. It's really the the backbone of this picture. 
Wow. And yeah, that's weird considering, you know, how many of the meet the Fockers and the uh, the one where he's a terrible stand up. I mean, I, I would, really thought he was just phoning him in from here on in. I love that this might be the first movie of De Niro's that a lot of people will see. You know, I mean, Di- DiCaprio is uh, is good. He's well cast. Um, I-, I-, I found the character believable and, you know, the performance effective. But you've heard me say before that I think that if somebody is, well, if somebody's miscast in a movie, there's nothing they can do to be right for the part. Right. No matter how good that actor is. Up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're always going to be, at best, slightly wrong for it, and the, and the movie's not going to work. Well, the same is true if you're if you're well cast. You can make some really bad choices, and the worst you can do is almost not be right for it. But you're still right <laughs> for it, so it'll still work. Right. So that brings us to DiCaprio. He is working really hard to not be right for it. And uh, <laughs> in fact, it gets so distracting at one point that I just was watching an actor do an imitation of Billy Bob Thornton in Sling Blade. Oh, my gosh. And then wow. when you think it can't get more distracting, you're now aware of the fact, oh, no, I'm sorry, mea culpa, he's doing an imitation of Marlon Brando, <sighs> do, doing an imitation of Billy Bob Thornton in Sling Blade. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but this is the thing that really captures kind of my, my, my thoughts. I do think it'll win Best Picture, and I am not going to complain or, you know, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> But, you know, we're, we're 33 years m- removed from Goodfellas losing right. Best Picture to a movie that was really acclaimed because of how it was seen as a, a much-needed correction to the treatment of Native American cultures in cinema, and that was Dances with Wolves. Right. And I, at the time went, well, yes, I see the corrections being made here. Much needed corrections. Hooray. And it's still a movie about an honorable white guy. (laughs) Yeah. So 33 years later, Scorsese's the one making the movie that corrects much of cinematic history about, um, you know, Native American uh, history. And uh, it blissfully is about a dishonorable white guy. It's still about white people. It's not about the Osage. But at least it's understanding enough that if you want to tell a story about anything that happened to Native tribes in this country and you want that movie to be about white people, those white people had have to be the villains. And, I suppose, but then you're humanizing the murderers. Uh, well, this was the choice, though, that, that he made, and I'm saying it is a correction. I'm not saying it's the ultimate correction. But I 33 see. years later, it is a big step forward, and it was the right correction to the book. You know, DiCaprio was cast in the Jesse Plemons role as the federal agent who comes and solves the murders. Right. I thought that was the whole point. And Scorsese realized the lead can't be the good guy. How about we rewrite the book and we make the title characters, the killers, be the main characters? Because if you didn't, if you just made the book, you're right back to making an honorable white guy movie. Oh, so you see, that's the correction that gets made, and mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. flows from that, and everything that's lacking really is still an offshoot of wanting to adapt something that really was fundamentally flawed in its approach to the subject to begin with. Uh, you right. Know, the, the, the novel. It, it did the book part. The novel, yeah. Belated spoiler alert. Multiphasic transmissions overlapping. It's almost a gibberish. Subspace. Dare to Wonder.